Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> On your seat near you, grab one of these. If you're here for the first time, you're going to need it. Hallelujah. And turn to Joshua. Joshua chapter 1. We're doing a series going through all the books of the Bible. We've just gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And today we're on Joshua, trying to cover each book in one week, or at least look at the major points in each book. I'm trying to ask God just to let it speak to me, whatever He would want to say to you and to those at home listening. So today we're in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, uh, sorry, now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to the Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you. That's a good promise from God, amen? No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. And look at this next little piece of that verse. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. As you finish the book, you realize that that particular promise was just about to shape the life of, of Joshua and the future of the nation of Israel. Joshua is one of the scripture's first characters in which we see discipleship in action. You remember when we did 3D? Remember that? Each one of us should be, number one, a disciple of, of Christ, Number two, the disciple of another. And number three, a discipler. We should be pouring our lives into someone. Well, Joshua's the first real biblical character who shows us that in operation. He is most certainly under the authority of God. And who's he under in human terms? Moses. He's one of, as I say, one of the earliest and best examples of a disciple in the Old Testament. He was under Moses' authority, raised up, discipled by him. And of course, he himself had many men under his authority. But more than that, Joshua is probably one of the first and best examples in the Bible of this simple point. Listen carefully. The point is this. If you don't change, you'll never change. Say that again. <laughs> if you don't change, you'll never change. Now, I know that might sound a little bit Irish. I am Irish. <laughs> but if you don't change, folks, please listen. I'm not joking. If you don't change, you're actually never going to change. And I have worked with people long enough to know this. People want the benefits of change without the change. People want the fruits of changing. They know what they should do. They know what they want. But they want all that without actually having to change. And one of the worst insults anybody can ever, you know, pay you is if you meet them after one year or two years and they walk up to you and say, ah, oh, you haven't changed a bit. That's terrible. Because there should be, definitely, in every Christian life, there should be, an, you know, in a way that we can assess it, a constant movement of change 
Turn to 1 Corinthians a moment. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is Paul talking. This is a great piece of scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. He talks about the phases of life and how easy it is for us, for you and for me, to get stuck in one of these phases. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Three things Paul mentions there. And there are actually three themes or three principles that run throughout Scripture. Number one is your thinking. Folks, if you don't change your thinking, you will never change your speech. If you don't change your thinking, you will never change your actions. Okay? It all starts in the mind. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, you will only be transformed through the changing of your mind, the transformation, the metamorphosis of your thinking. This is biblical, folks. Not just, you know, some seminar that you might hear in the world. But the conclusion of Paul in Romans chapter 12, the conclusion of the gospel message, is you will remain like a child all your life unless you change your thinking and through doing so your speech will automatically change and then your uh, actions or choices the decisions you make in life will also be changed I would say that Joshua Joshua is famous for this one thing he man, he was a defeated character in Joshua chapter 1 but you've got to give him credit for this God came to him and gave him a challenge and said, you know what, Josh? If you do ABC, I will do ABC. And Joshua is outstanding for this fact. He said, okay. Do you know what, God? You're on. Let's do it. And that makes him stand out and anybody else stand out who comes the same route. Joshua accepted that there were great flaws and weaknesses in his own life, firstly, but secondly, he dealt with them, and then he was able to not just bring himself to victory, but the whole nation. Now, if you follow the God Channel, or TBN, or Inspiration Channel, or any of the TV programs, or you're a book reader, you know, there's a lot of themes that run on Christian television. Name some of them. Faith, right? Healing, speech, the, the renewal of your mind. And you could make the mistake of thinking that these are modern themes or these are things that have just come about, you know, in the modern day. Well, they're not, I'm afraid. These same things, these same problems beset the Old Testament characters as much as they do the new. In fact, in the Old Testament, you see these things like speech or thinking. You see them in the story. Joshua felt very weak. His thinking was not right. And as you'll see in a moment, that God had to change that by speaking to him, by prophesying to him, and changing the way he saw himself. What did we look at last week? What was the theme? Blessings and curses. And what does it say in Deuteronomy? It says this, Therefore, I offer you today two things, life and death. Blessings and curses. It's like a choice. But turn to Romans a moment. 
Just turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. The Apostle Paul takes the same theme of life and death. In the Old Testament, you see it as blessings and curses. Now look at Romans chapter 8, verse 6. What does Paul say is life and death? Somebody read it. Oh. So in the Old Testament, last week, we read that God offers us life or death, blessings and curses. And then when you skip forward into the New Testament, you see the same theme. But now, through Paul and through the other New Testament writers, it's unpacked. And he, he says, actually, if you want to get right down to the theology of it, it's in your thinking. Okay? So he extends that thought, expands that thought. Life and death are produced by your thinking. Romans 8, verse 6. And the same for speech. Turn to Jeremiah. Speech is not a modern... Jeremiah chapter 1, please. Take a look at this. So much. You know, people like Andrew Womack. I love Andrew Womack. But not just him. Kenneth Copeland and many other famous names around the world have done so much teaching recently on the power of speech. But it's nothing new. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 6. Jeremiah's speech is wrong. So God talks to him. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Verse 6, sorry. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said. I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me what? Look at it. What does it say? Do not say. Do not say. So the same things, excuse me, the same things that you see in the New Testament, they are right there in the Old Right? It's just that in the New Testament, they're maybe spelled out a bit more deeply and we get the full theology of them. Now, many of you are maybe here for the first time or you weren't here the last time that we looked at body, soul, and spirit. I think any Christian, and I'm talking about you, if you started your life without being taught about body, soul, and spirit, then you got off to a very bad start. I think every Christian needs that. Are you born again? Well, do you know what happened to you when you got saved? God put a new spirit in you, not the old one fixed up. The old one was dead. God put a brand new spirit in you. Paul says, behold, all things have become new. You have a new spirit. But you know your mind? He didn't touch your mind. It's the old mind, the mind from what Paul calls the old man, or the old you. So there's the same you that way, but there's a new spirit in you. Now, Joshua stands out for this reason. He obeyed the voice of God. He obeyed God, believed God, and broke through into victory. And so will you, my friend. Listen to me this morning. Listen, you have a spirit, but do you live out of your mind? You have a spirit. The spirit of God abides in you, talking to you, guiding you, speaking to you. But do you live instead out of your mind? It's called being spirit-led or spirit-controlled or spirit-filled. It's supposed to be the normal Christian life. Joshua stands out 
I know he's an Old Testament character and all that, but he stands out for this reason. He definitely followed through with God's instruction to him. And folks, I tell you this, any person here, there's no exceptions. Any one of you who would just believe God and live out of your spirit could turn this world upside down. There's no exception. Remember I told you I was hosting a conference in Dublin? Remember the story with the guy? I was, I was the host, but I wasn't speaking. The speaker was a guy coming in from Yonggi Cho, the biggest church in the world. And I'd never met the speaker, so it was a youth event. The place was packed, and the speaker turns up. <laughs> Man, did we get a surprise. The speaker walked in. And I'm thinking, this is the speaker? This is the speaker. I thought, man alive. I, I introduced myself. The guy was miles away. He seemed mentally handicapped. Right? I worked with a mentally handicapped for 10 years. And I was trying to make an assessment of him. But he certainly wasn't a normal person. So I completely shocked. I thought, what am I supposed to do? And he's, I've got my leadership team here, and he's over there on the front row. Oh, dear me. <laughs> Have I got any sermons anywhere? And some of the leaders took me aside and said, you cannot let that guy speak. I said, well, what am I supposed to do? He's got a letter from Young E. Cho. He's got a letter from the pastor of the biggest church in the world. What am I supposed to do? And I sort of said, Lord, what are you doing? And I just kind of thought, you know what I'll do? Let him try. We'll put him up there. And if he messes up, I'll just gently go up and kind of take the mic and shove him off. And we'll, we'll just take it from there. So one of the most nervous moments of my ministry life, I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big hand. <laughs> up he came. Oh, God. Everything changed. As soon as he got in the pulpit, the anointing came down on him. And my word, did he preach the gospel. He completely changed. He, he became a, a ministry machine. And then he finished his message. I tell you, the place, people were flat on the floor. The whole place, including me. And when he finished, back to his seat. If you don't live out of the Spirit, Jesus said, I will raise up stones who will do it. If you don't go in my name, I'll send anyone who will go in my name. Now that's shocking. We need to obey this, not this. Amen? And I think that's what makes Joshua stand out. God gave him a very simple promise. And anybody, any one of you, who would make a decision today to live out of your spirit and not out of your mind, and I'm not exaggerating, you can change the world. As you know, I worked in Ireland for a decade. And we used to have this little lady used to sit on the back of our church. She was totally anonymous, nondescript. All I knew about her was that she had been an alcoholic. That's all I knew. And her name was Rita Cully. But Rita was very quiet, very passive little lady. And it's just the sort of person you shake hands with on Sunday, and that's all we would ever see. 
We left Allen for many years and I went back and I happened to be in a meeting with some pastors who were looking after a drug addict who was going to go into treatment, etc., etc. And in that meeting, after many years away, one of the pastors turned and said, why don't we send this drug addict to the Rutland Clinic? Now, that's like Harley Street in Dublin. You can't afford to get an appointment there, you know. So I sort of laughed and I said, yeah, likely. Who's going to pay for him to go to the Rutland? And the, the, the pastor turned around and said, oh, well, uh, Rita Cully is in charge of the Rutland Clinic. You, you know Rita, she used to be in your church. Rita Cully. Yeah, she, she's the manager. I rang Rita Cully. I said, I want to see you. How can a little lady who sits at the back and never opens her mouth, how can, how can, you, how can I go away for five or six years and I come back and you're the CEO, the manager of a private clinic the most famous one in Dublin, I want to see you. And she came, I met her in a hotel in Dublin, and she walked in, business suit, hello, Pastor Mike, hello, Rita, what happened you? What happened you? The mind. She said, I can, actually, I did a series, 35 weeks, on the renewing of your mind. And she brought me back to that. And she said, you said that if I did live out of my spirit, that all things were possible, and I took that, just like Joshua, I took that, and I sought the Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm nobody, nothing, a bit like Joshua, I can't do it. I took that, and I sought God, and I felt that he wanted me to be a counselor. So I went and I did training, and it's like every door opened before me. And she had a meteoric rise there within that agency. I was gobsmacked. Just brilliant, man. Fantastic. But why should we be shocked? Why should we be shocked? What is that? All that is, is one person believing what they hear. That's it. It's just one person saying, do you know what? I think I'm going to do that. Instead of putting myself down all the time, instead of comparing myself, which is my first point actually on your notes there, Joshua made two big mistakes in Joshua chapter 1. And the Lord corrected him on both of them. The first thing was the comparison trap. And I don't know if you're aware of it, folks, but it's, I'm very conscious of it because I come from a big family, right? And you can imagine, I've got nine brothers and sisters. That's a big family. And there's lots of comparison that can take place in a situation like that. But whether you're aware of it or not, let me tell you, this world that we grow up in, from the day you're born, it tries to make you, to make an evaluation of yourself, an estimation of your worth. And I believe the world would challenge us or try to challenge us to come up with a price tag, a value of what you're worth. You can often see it with the choices people make in their marriage when they choose someone that's abusive to them or whatever, and they undervalue. The choice of a marriage partner is a very good estimation of what a person actually sets as a worth upon themselves. But society tries this through, I've given you four reasons there, education, social class, money, and looks. 
just four, there's many others. And you can do your own assessment of your own life, but if I think of myself, I didn't have a great education. I didn't come from a high social class, and we didn't have much money. But at least, um, okay, <laughs> praise the Lord. Let's just move on. Hallelujah. What are you laughing at? Hallelujah. Children, we're not supposed to stay as children, right? Paul says, when I was a child, I thought, talked, and thus my decisions were childish. The decisions I made. It began in my mind, and because I didn't change my mind, my whole decision-making in my life became wrong. So we're supposed to grow up and become adults. Look at what the kids do. I've given you three phases of, of, the, of, of the life of human beings, but as Christians, we need to be aware to come to the adult stage. Kids make an estimation of their own worth through what they have. A child's got to have the latest toy. He's got to have such a pair of runners or trainers. And that kind of changes a little bit when people get into their teenage years, and very often then they get their identity or their value through what they do. What pop band they follow, rock band they follow, what t-shirt they wear, what group, what their gang they're in, through what they do, through belonging. But the idea is that we keep growing all the way up to that third phase, whereas adults, we actually value ourselves as we should do on Jesus Christ, but on who we are, if you like, would be a far better valuation. Whether you're aware of it or not, society does bombard you all day long with trying to gauge your worth and trying to play around with your worth. Remember the, the ad for Vodafone? It was a funny, it's a funny ad. It's a billboard. I saw it once and it was this big billboard. And on the billboard, there's this blissfully happy couple. Man, woman, sitting on a park bench on a beautiful day with big smiles on their faces. He's got his arm around her. And you look at the ad and you think, what's the ad for? And down in the corner, there's a little red box saying Vodafone. Right. And the, the idea is to try and persuade you that if you're not on the Vodafone network, you're not going to be happy. How can you be happy in life? And you may think that these things have no effect, but you know what? When you get bombarded all day, they actually do have an effect. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Would you marry a girl who's on O2? No. See? See what I mean? It affects us all. Folks, all day, every day, whether you are aware of it or not, you are being bombarded by a world system that plays with your self-worth or tries to. And that's why all day, every day, we need to consider the thoughts of God. Now, without mentioning any names... And without pointing anybody out in this place, many of you would struggle with self-worth. Many of you would undervalue yourself, certainly spiritually, undercut yourself, a bit like Joshua does here. And that is a very common trait within the human race, but also in Scripture. And when God approaches such people, we won't deal with it today, but when God approaches such people in the Bible, He always deals with them the same way. He talks to them about them. When somebody's proud, for example, God will often talk to them about him and let them know how awesome he is. But when someone's broken down, as you'll see with Joshua or Gideon or Jeremiah, it's very different. 
And God tries to tell them about themselves, tries to build them up. So I don't know about your history, friend. You think about yourself. What was your family like? Was there a comparison trap in your home? Were you compared against your brother or your sister? Or as a husband, do you feel your wife compares you? I saw someone come into church the other day with a bunch of flowers, said he was taking his wife out. I said, go and hide there. Don't let Jeanette see that. She'll be comparing me. <laughs> Hallelujah. People compare. But you know, it's very wrong to compare. And as a parent, you shouldn't do that. My dad had, listen to this, <laughs> my dad had nine children. But as a young parent and a good-intentioned parent, they started off with the whole education trip, you know. And the first five children, man, they had the best education you ever dreamed of. And to this day, they went that way. They went, and we never got them back. My eldest sister was leaving university, and I was still in primary school. So by the time my father, having seen the product of the world, by the time I got to about 10 or 11, my dad had completely changed his strategy. As he saw the effect of the world on them and the other children. You see, if you've only got one or two children, you won't understand this until it's too late. And you will put too high a price on the wrong things. Don't learn it the hard way, or you can lose a generation. And when, by the time I came along, both my mother and my father said, right, we're not going to get this one wrong. You know, don't try that. Your brother did that. Your sister did that. But it, most of all, never mind changes in me. The change was in them. The change was in their perspective. And you may be pressurized by your siblings, by your parents. You may be compared by your parents. You may be compared in the workplace by your boss. But you know, you don't ever have to accept comparison. It's not good. Paul calls it foolish. He says, look how foolish these people are. They compare each other with each other. And you do not need to accept that. In fact, it's a, comparison is a loser's game. And you know why? Because if you compare yourself with others and you feel better than them, you're going to get proud. And if you compare yourself with others and you feel less than them, you're going to be defeated. So comparison is actually a no-win situation. And I, I've confronted it all my life. It's one of the things I thank God. My mindset from a young man has helped me get over many obstacles that may have knocked a lot of other people out simply because I didn't accept comparison. Remember, I told you I took over from a very nice pastor, 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 one of the best guys I've ever worked with, Peter Finch. He's a lovely person tremendous, and I'm supposed to follow him. That was a massive comparison, huge. And I took, I'll never forget it. When I stood up that day to preach on my first Sunday, I walked into that pulpit and I pointed my finger at that congregation. I said, I'm not Peter. I am not Peter Finch. I'm Michael McKeever. Let me introduce myself. And I will not be held hostage to anything in your mind or any comparison. And we're going to do a deal here today. I'm going to give you lots of grace to be who you are. But guess what? You're going to let me be who I am, and I'm not going to be anybody else. And I thank God that congregation were actually fantastic. And they said yes. But I'm afraid it's not like that everywhere. 
And as a Christian, you're going to have to learn to stand on your own two feet, to fight your own corner, and to cause people to accept you for who you are. Remember, you don't have to live up to their standards. We need, you just concentrate on pleasing God. The comparison is, is a cruel, cruel game. It's a wicked game, and we have no place for it. And Jeanette, I don't compare you to anyone. And don't you compare me to anyone. Remember, I, I didn't mean to embarrass Tom, but I had Tom Higgins or Tom Cruise. Remember? Got him in lots of trouble. <laughs> don't, com don't compare to anyone, because it's an unfair game. In fact, in that church, you, there's always one, isn't there? In that church, there was, one, there was one woman. She came to me about six months later, you know. Pastor Mike. Yes, dear. You're not very like Peter. There's always one, isn't there? But you know, God gave me wisdom to, to answer that girl. I'll never forget it. Because my reply just because it's not like me. My reply came out of my spirit. Pastor Mike, you're not very like Peter. And I turned to her straight away. And I said, neither are you. Neither are you. And you know what's more? If we had a contest and we made a list of Peter and all that he is and me and you, I'd, be, I'd win. I'd win, right? Because I'm more like him than you are. And that's the problem with comparison. If you start playing that game, you're going you're gonna to lose. You're going to lose. And God will see you through. God's made you the way you are. He accepts you the way you are. It's society out there and maybe inexperienced parents. Parents who are not long at the game can mess this one up. So be who you are, folks. Joshua, you see, in, in, in fact, I'll come back to it in a moment. Turn to Judges. He, he's not alone. The book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6 and verse 12. Look at Gideon. He's the same sort of character. Gideon doesn't think anything of himself. Judges chapter 6 and verse 12. Judges 6 verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And look at this. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. I'm not from a wealthy background. I come from Mary Hill. I come from Somerston. Right? He puts himself down. He looks back on his family tree and said, I, 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 I don't come from a wealthy place. I come from a downtrodden place. And then what does he say? Uh, but Lord Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan, that's his family home, his background, is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Comparison within his home. Obviously, something in his childhood, in his upbringing, he had already made his mind up that he was less than his brother's and less than his sisters, right? And look what God, God speaks back to him and says, no, let me give you your identity. You're a mighty warrior. You're a man of valor. Turn to Jeremiah, because this is all over the place, folks. 
And that makes me think that some of you have these same issues. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4. Ah, sovereign... Sorry, verse 6. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said. I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a child. Same thing. As soon as the word of the Lord or the calling of God came to Jeremiah, his first reaction was to put himself down. And some of you folks, you may well be qualified, and that's fine, no problem, within your own sphere. Listen to me a moment. But the realm in which you may put yourself down is the spiritual one. And so even though you're so competent in your workplace, even though you do so well in your career, when anyone asks you, would you lead a cell group? Would you do that? You, you shy back. And the first thing that enters your mind may be, well, I'm not like, I'm not like. It's comparison. And comparison is a, it's a wicked thing. It's not a good thing. And it, Moses did the same, didn't he? Moses gives seven excuses to God why he couldn't follow God, why he couldn't obey him. There's no shortage of leaders in the church, you know. They're there. <laughs> They're here. There's no shortage. There's no shortage of people to preach the gospel, Chris. They're everywhere. It's just a lack of confidence, a buying into the world system, whatever. And these things knock you out and rob you of your eternal reward. So the comparison trap, it's a big topic. And I just ask you to assess yourself. Secondly, and, and briefly, the self-righteousness trap. Moses also, sorry, Joshua also fell into that. Remember, for 40 years he had been living in the shadow of Moses. And you can imagine, as any young man, he probably thought I could do a better job than him. <laughs> well, he got his opportunity. It seems to me, please listen, it seems to me that Moses was huge in Joshua's eyes. And God was very small. And Joshua followed Moses until Moses was dead. And then God taps him on the shoulder and says, Look, Josh, I'm actually the God that he's been following. And let me introduce myself. And in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua has to kind of get come to grips with who he is. I have no doubt that he probably thought he could do a better job. <laughs> but when Moses was dead, Joshua was discouraged, lost all faith, and that's the key element. He didn't have the faith. He didn't have the faith to lead Israel forward. And God had to speak to him. Be of good courage. Be courageous. Be strong. For I will be with you. Now, just look up here a moment. Joshua probably had a list in his mind of the person he had to follow. Moses. He parted the Red Sea. He strikes a rock and water comes down. The earth opens up. Manna and quail. And on and on. List of miracles after miracles after miracles. And Joshua's thinking to himself, God, I can't do all that. I can't do all that. I can't follow him. And what did God say back to him? Anybody know? What did God say he said two words. What were they? Be holy. Be holy. And God said, you know what, Joshua? Moses didn't do that. 
I did that. Joshua, I parted the Red Sea, not Moses. I brought the water from the rock. I fed the people. Moses was holy. Holy Moses, right? It's not a joke. <laughs> Moses was holy. And in Joshua chapter 1, 2, 3, he says this to him. Listen, Joshua, if you walk before me as your father Moses did, if you walk before me in the same way, and you're, I'll do all that for you too. So don't have an overestimation of Moses comparison. Rather, have a big estimation of your God. And understand what it is that he requires of you. He doesn't require you to fill someone else's shoes. He doesn't require you to be like anybody else. That's why he made you the way you are, Agnes. That's why you're the way you are, Everson. God made you the way you are because he desired you. He has formed you. Now, you need to accept that. And you need to reject anything and anybody that tries to change that or morph that. And I understand what I'm saying. We change to Christ-likeness, of course. But these same themes follow through in the New Testament. Be holy, God said to Joshua. And the same things that happened, Moses, will happen for you. Jesus said the same thing in other ways. He said, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you too will bear much fruit. And I think what God requires of us is probably a lot more simple than what people do. And I think people can often put weights on your shoulder. Expectations. Do you know what? You're just not good enough, are you? You're just not quite as good as your sister, as your brother, as your colleague, as your fellow student. You're just not there. And that's how the world will speak to you if you let it happen. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Don't fall for it. One last scripture. Turn to Micah. Micah 6, verse 8. This is a great, great scripture. Look at this. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. God simplifies his requirements of you down to three simple things. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Three things. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does God actually require of you? He requires that you act justly, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly with your God. Let's bow our heads this morning. Just stay focused. I invite the worship team back. Just bow your heads and you focus on you. I believe there are people here maybe who have struggled with comparison all your life. And maybe you feel that you have never achieved what other people set for you, the, the hurdles, the goals, the tasks. And you can be driven all your life to achieve the goals of men. And God, this morning in this place, would you put your arm around your children and let them know that they are loved and accepted just the way they are. You don't need to change one bit right now to be accepted. And the wonderful thing about the cross 
in Jesus Christ as we can come just as you are. God, I thank you that you compare me to no one. Absolutely no one. Just Jesus. Just the image of Christ that you would be formed in me. And I thank you. You don't abandon me to do that myself, but you've given us the Holy Spirit. And now, Holy Spirit, work in us. We commit ourselves to you. We give ourselves to you. Help us accept ourselves and each other as you have accepted us.